Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Özge Aka, Senior Researcher at the Institute of Geographical Sciences, Freie Universität Berlin. We'll be talking about her book, Fighting for the River, Gender, Body, and Agency in Environmental Struggles, published recently by the University of California Press. So thank you very much, Özge, for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Aliza. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell us about yourself and how you conceived of this book? Yeah, sure. So I'm from Turkey and I studied in Ankara, um, studied political science uh, at the Middle Eastern Technical University. And uh, I also completed my master's in the same department. Uh, Then I did my PhD in sociology at Lancaster University in the UK. And then I returned back to Turkey. Of course, like lots of things happened in between. I returned back to Turkey and uh, worked in the Turkish university briefly. uh, And then I applied for a postdoc position. Uh, in Berlin, which was led by Nancy Fraser, because Nancy was an Einstein fellow back then in Berlin. Um, And she was leading a project called Rethinking Crisis um, uh, back in 2013, it was. And then I applied. It was actually like by chance. And to my surprise, she accepted my application. I moved to Berlin. And that's how I actually started this research project, which slowly turned into this book, not very slowly, <laughs> and, and also like um, changing its, its form a lot. Um, and within all those years that I spent in Berlin, then I went to Paris also uh, a year again with Nancy in Collège d'Etudes Mondiales, and I turned back to Berlin again. And this project grew a new skin, uh, so to say, um, and I abandoned my starting point, which was very much inspired by my own background as a Marxist political economy person. Um, and also um, Nancy's 
theory at the time of multiple crises was like she was um, trying to develop a framework in which like this crisis of ecology, crisis of representation, crisis of economy, crisis of social reproduction, like how they come together and so. And my initial idea was to understand local environmental struggles as a manifestation of this, you know, multiple and multi-layered crisis. But you know, after I went to the to the field, um, like the whole thing changed um, a lot. But maybe we can talk about it uh, afterwards. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, actually, my next question was about the many versions of this book and your fieldwork. So I'm glad you left it there. Um, so in the book, you tell us that you conducted this really capacious multi-sided fieldwork on the struggles against hydroelectric power plants in Turkey. But the book centered on the East Black Sea region. So what about the East Black Sea region moved you to developing a body-centered approach to environmental struggles? Yeah, this is a very, very important question. and I think it is the central question that I can say. Um, because, yes, as you say, I uh, conducted field research also in the Mediterranean region, where I'm from, um, actually, and uh, east and southeast uh, Anatolia, including the Kurdish, Kurdish parts of the country, um, and also in the East Black Sea region. Uh, because, like, one of a part of my initial idea was to do a kind of a comparative analysis also. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, more and more I kind of, I decided to focus on East Plexi region. Why? I mean, a short answer is, is that it was very difficult to analyze that case with the existing literature. So, so there's like kind of very established um, accounts, approaches within this environmental justice literature, within political ecology literature, environmental struggles literature and so on. And the other cases that, that I observed, that I, that I kind of uh, researched, were kind of fitting into these approaches in a way. And in the, in the Mediterranean region, for example, you know, the struggle was very much about livelihoods uh, because the, the waters of the rivers are used for agriculture, for subsistence agriculture, as the summers are very long and dry. Uh, and it is impossible, actually, for the small farmers to sustain this, this agricultural practice, um, you know, uh, without uh, irrigation. Um, so this is like very much uh, like what this political ecology literature, what like people like Martinez Alia, for example, calls environmentalism of the poor. Um, and so the basic idea is that, you know, people, especially in the rural areas, especially in the global south, the people who are struggling to protect environmental entities or environmental commons are doing that because they depend on them, you know, very in the very immediate economic sense. So that was kind of the case for the Mediterranean region. And for the Kurdish region, it kind of fits into another very central frame, which is recognition. Because like the whole struggle for you know against in the in the Kurdish region, um, by the way, it is more about dams, not like small scale hydroelectric power plants like in the in the Black Sea region. So in like the well known case is Hassan Cave, the Ulusu, Ulusu Dam, but also there's a very big anti dam struggle 
in Dersim uh, region, for example, and also in parts of in other parts of uh, Kurdish region, like in Kup and so. And this is very much embedded in the in the Kurdish uh, struggle for autonomy, for political autonomy, and the struggle uh, for sovereignty over na- you know uh, natural resources, as as it is called in the literature over environmental entities is a part of it. So is a, a dimension of this kind of um, struggle for autonomy, which is very much the case like in indigenous struggles, for example, in many parts of the world, in Latin America, in the US, in Canada, and so on. Um, so it was like two like really strong kind of cases fitting into two very strong approaches. And, and I thought, okay, this is interesting and this is important. But, you know, <laughs> let me, like, put my energy into something that is kind of a little bit falling into a gap. So a little bit, like, more difficult to really understand and, and analyze, which is the East Plexi case, because in the East Plexi region, um, the main thing is people do not use river waters at all for agriculture, it's like monocultural agriculture of, of tea and hazelnut, uh, and rainfall sustains it. So there's no need for irrigation there. There's no like kind of that kind of agriculture. Um, and also, um, even though like this East Plexi um, villages are home to Laz and Hemshin peoples, uh, those ethnicities are very much integrated into you know, Turkish national identity. And there is no struggle for you know, political autonomy or sovereignty over resources or so. And uh, there's also no relationship of belief or worshipping or secrecy or so, you know, like kind of in terms of secrecy of water or waterscapes, like we see in Dersim region, for example. So, so that was really interesting case. So that was really interesting to see. Uh, because at the same time, it is the hotbed of the of the struggle. So, like there are really strong struggles going on there, and it is it is the place very much associated with the struggle actually, uh, in you know in the media, in the public opinion, and so. Uh, and the question was like, why? You know, why do people you know <laughs> fight uh, to protect the rivers if they if they don't use them, if they don't worship them, if 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 they have no kind of that kind of cultural, political, you know, status or, or significance and so so what was it? So that was I think the central question of the book that became the central question of the book through fieldwork. Um, and then I decided, okay, so I, I want to work on this. Yeah, thanks so much for taking us through you know, like so much nuance around how you thought about this and giving really placing the book within the context of um, Turkey more broadly. And, you know, you mentioned the secrecy of water. And my next question is about, um, you know, inviting you to think uh, more about that with us, which you've already done in the book. So uh, even though, you know, water is not something worshipped necessarily in the book, there's this common refrain um, that your interlocutors bring up calling water God's water. And I'd love to hear more about how seeing water through God shaped your understanding of the commons in conversation with the corporal. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. That's a very nice question also. And that was something that I kind of 
But one of one of the reviewers of the book actually raised this question. Like you say, ah, like there's no secrecy there, but actually there's like like a very strong. Um, he was also like working with, I think, religious studies and so. Um, but there's this like very interesting frame of God's water there, and and that's true. So it's like I I should say maybe like there's no relationship of secrecy or worship but of course like belief is 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 a part of a whole thing but i see like how i see it i see like god's water as a very very apt definition of what we say environmental commons and and i wanted to bring it out up in a way as a as an entry point to to this kind of issue of of commons um and because I think what this this term God's water, um, so maybe a little bit background. So people were saying a lot, like in, you know, in the interviews and the observations, like that was something that was used a lot. So this is God's water. This is God's like nobody can take it. You know, nobody can. You know, and because like this this small scale hydropower plants, hydroelectric power plants in the region were done by private companies. So it's kind of a privatization of of. Um, you know, rivers in a way, river waters. And that was like a, like a strong argument, you know, strong claim that this is this is God's water, like no private company and not even the state actually can can claim that uh, water. And I see that, yeah, this is interesting because this is a very apt kind of a religious, cultural religious framing uh, of environmental common. Because it, it very much captures the idea that so rivers cannot be treated as property, so neither mm-hmm. private nor public. So and uh, because no one can have them, no one can have a total claim on them, no one can own them. They belong to anyone and everyone. Um, and there's there's a quote that I use uh, in in the book that I wanted to also quote here. This is from uh, elected village head, the Muhtar, we say in Turkish, of Arulu village in the region. So what he says is, is that, I quote, So if you live in this valley, this nature, this water, this air, this sun is ours. But when we say they are ours, we don't mean that we own them as our property. We don't have the ownership of them, but they are ours. So I think it's a very, very kind of successful definition of it and um in response to your your question about the corporeal about like how how it kind of relates um so i should say like why i say that it has you know this kind of um bodily corporeal relationship that i describe in the book why why i say that it's not you know religious or belief related in a way like it's very much different from like let's say um the relationship of women in india with with ganges you know like this is this is a very much religiously loaded you know even though it's also co- very much corporeal like religiously loaded relationship uh, here it it is different so there's not that that kind of loadedness um and uh so it is not, in a way, this kind of relationship is not experienced within the realm of ritual or secrecy. Um, but this this kind of maybe, like, the relation could be that this understanding, this religious framing of the common is also, uh, like, provide the context in which this relationship that I describe is, is established and maintained. Because when the river is open... When the river is open to, to to all, 
So it's open to all to to hear, to touch, to to drink, you know, to um, to look at and to to enjoy. So it is kind of a very much kind of open source, and 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 people have this kind of corporeal relationship, very intimate relationship because of that, because of openness. So this is this kind of creates the context and also functions as a strong claim of legitimacy, I would say. Yeah, thank you very much for you know really taking us through the gist of that question. Um and you know speaking of the corporeal, I want to devote some time to talking about the incisive gendered critique you bring in the book. Uh, so, you know, in the book, you show us that how people frame their relationships to rivers and struggles around them are very much gendered and rooted in sensory memory alongside uh, how it's so corporal. So can you speak to the role of sensory memory in how environmental struggles are gendered? Yeah. Yeah. Um... Very good question again. And I could say that, you know, sensory and, and memory are gendered uh, in as much as they're very much embedded in a very thoroughly gendered uh, life world. So which is life world is a world of experience. It's a phenomenological term. Um, so like and um, and that's how I, I think I use phenomenology a lot in in the book because the the conceptual advantage of the the term phenomenological body or lived body you know as Meliponte uses it um, and especially in the hands of feminists you know feminist scholarships um, that it manifests that that the body or our bodies are not like free floating you know things but they are very much situated very much located within a spe- uh, specific spatial, social, cultural context and relations of power. Um, and bodily senses uh, and effects and also body memory that I talk about in, in the book. Uh, so these are about the capacities, like bodily capacities, which is not itself maybe gendered, so which, which is an anonymous in a way, but these capacities are always, always, already realize within those you know contexts within those relations of power that I, that I'm talking about so there is no uh, in a way anonymous body per se um so in the in the in the life world in the living world um and um so in a way so it is very much bodily capacities are very much effectuated very much manifested within certain habitual dispositions and um, how these habitual dispositions are, are shaped um, in our context in the in the East Plexi region. Um, so they are shaped by, as maybe also anywhere else, by gender division of labor a lot, um, structures of dwelling, social and cultural organizations of e- everyday life, and also geographical and cultural configurations of patriarchy, you know, as a relation of power. Um, so and how it translates uh, to the everyday life of women that women are responsible for agricultural work because agricultural work is understood as as a kind of extension of housework uh, in the region and it is women who are outside um like in the in the very dramatic landscape of of the black sea region who are outside like working in the tea fields working in the hazelnut fields work sometimes also with animals, with cattle and goats and, and so, and they're always 
also by a river and with a river. So it is always, it kind of requires this kind of daily routine relationship that you have with the river. And um, so that's why, that is the context in which like this very intimate, you know, very strong relationship is, is established. So it is not uh, so an essentialist thing in that way. So I'm not saying that it is, you know, women who establishes that relationship because they are closer to nature or any, anything else. It is this uh, through this kind of very material conditions of dwelling, of everyday life, of a gender division of labor that, that women are establishing this relationship more than men. So I don't say that men do not have that relationship. And in the book, I also use men's experiences and, and sometimes accounts and so. Um, uh, but women, in, in the case of women, it is very much more kind of uh, accented. It is very much like present and also very much present in their discourses and narratives about, about the struggle. Um, so and, and also this, this relationship, uh, which is kind of established through bodily effects and, and bodily senses and so, they are also um, provide the basis for body memory. So like this is how also body memory emerges. And body memory is, is something that I took from a German, which is like funny psychiatrist, neurologist, Thomas Fuchs. But I think it's very useful for social scientists, for, for anthropologists, you know, sociologists and so out there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what really struck me was just like how you took us through, you know, how gender and memory are not these free floating items. You also show us that your interlocutors make claims uh, grounded in ontology, gender and agency. And led by them, you draw our attention to environment you draw attention from environmental justice to what you call socio-ecological justice. And I'd love to hear about what's at stake in making this shift. Yeah, um, yeah, it was this socio-ecological justice that was something that I thought about a lot while, while developing it. And um, because I'm not always necessarily very sympathetic about like always developing new terms and, and you know, new <laughs> But it was something that I really felt that this is maybe needed and uh, not necessarily as an alternative to environmental justice. So it's not that, oh, it's not environmental justice, but socio-ecological justice, but it could be also, it could also be seen as a kind of intervention to expand the borders, the existing borders of of environmental justice and maybe maybe justice in general in in, in a broader um, level. Um, because, like, the main idea of environmental justice, which is I'm very sympathetic, so which I, I work uh, a lot with, um, is this unfair or unjust distribution of environmental goods and hazards. So, so this very, very much distributional uh, idea, which is then expanded, you know, over time uh, to include, like, um, certain other conceptions of justice, like justice as recognition, uh, and also justice as enhancing um, capabilities, justice as representation, and so so Nancy's work was was also used in in this area a lot. Um, so and which is like very important, very important work. Um, but I was always thinking maybe I have this kind of eye for for gaps in in, in general. So I was also thinking like. Um, 
So it's it's kind of not enough. It remains short of understanding and explaining some of the environmental struggles of our time uh, and the claims of those struggles. And how I see this this claim is this claim is very much about coexistence. Uh, so like coexistence with non-human others, you know, non-human entities, beings, things, organisms, environments, whatever. And um, and this kind of not because not necessarily because people use them, you know, sometimes they do, but not, not necessarily because people, you know, use them immediately um, or depend on them or worship them or so. But um, also because they have a very close relationship with them. Uh, you know, this relationship, yeah, not only it is very much bodily, it's very much corporeal, but uh, not only corporeal, not only cultural, but what I would call social, you know, like a social relationship. Um, and this relationship is very fundamental to their socio-ecological existence, to their identity, to their way of living, and to their well-being and also to their claims of justice. So this is also like very much about their, their struggles for justice. And um, that's why I use relational ontology a lot because like uh, this relational ontology, I think, depicts um, that and also Meliponti, like who says, being in, in division. Um, and the idea is that the relations, uh, the relations are, you know, the relations that we have, human and non-human others, are um, prior uh, uh, prior to this entity, so and constitutive of this entity. So it's not that like we already exist and these relations like connect us, but these relations make us actually. These relations, pro- you know, produce us. Um, and so um, I think with socio-ecological justice, uh, what I want to do is to frame this this relationality to so this relational ontology. Um, between human and non-human forms of life as a matter of justice. Um, it's theoretically, uh, I think, an intervention to expand the borders of justice in general and environmental justice in particular and um, and kind of break with this nature-society duality in the field of justice and which is sometimes... Like we can see that in the in 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 this kind of literature of justice, sometimes in the form of environmental justice versus ecological justice, so which is kind of like breaking this 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 duality in a way, and articulating this very much internal relation and interconnection like within this 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 field. Um, but there's also um, a political side, as you say, like politically, I think. Um, what what it does it to maintain um, that non-human entities and environments are fundamental not only to our biological or ecological existence but also to our social life and relations. Um, and since I come from sociology, actually, like this 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 classical idea of social is like this relations between people. But actually, I, we know from many different fields right now, so the relations between people cannot be taught, like, you know, without mediation, without the intervention of the non-human. Um, and so what I was thinking that we need to, I mean, not, not me, of course, a lot of people, like we need to think, um, you know, terms like society, sociality, self, subjectivity, 
maybe even democracy, you know, like that kind of terms, like uh, like political terms, political conceptions, social terms and conceptions, you know, in the light of this relational ontological understanding, um, you know, Latour was saying, you know, I'm not like necessarily like this, you know, science and technology studies person, network theory person, but what Latour says, like something like a progressive composition of a common world. So like that kind of a commonality, um, actually, and to, to, to create this kind of common world, I think it's important um, to see our relationships, not just, you know, non-human things and environments in itself, but our relationships with them, our relationality with them as a part of it. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off absolutely and i really admire how you know you're able to bring um different ways of thinking together uh within this book and throughout our interview and you know i i want to ask you about how you think and this question might come off a bit odd but you no know, as i read the book it seemed to me that you add nuance to environmental struggles in triads. So, for instance, you put them in conversation with gender body agency or resources, livelihoods, life worlds, which we talked about a little bit, or ethics, ontology, relationality. So, yeah, as I was reading, I was very curious about what thinking in triads do for you methodologically, if it's even, you know, something pertinent to how you think <laughs> yeah actually mm, they they emerged through writing like not uh so they weren't there like when i uh-huh. as, as i told you like it's actually nothing more there when i started <laughs> <laughs> and um so um i think they appeared like very slowly through this conversation of 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 empirical data of all these observations and and, and interviews and so and um, you know, and theories and concepts and how how I was trying to like make sense of it uh, all. And this triads, like gender body agency, is is the main one. Maybe it's in the title of the book also, and uh, it depicts maybe the main frame that that I try to make make sense of like all I saw and all I heard and so. Um, and the main idea is that you know body centered. Uh, environmental activism of, of women and understanding the body, which was, I think, you know, very much lacking in the literature, understanding the body not only as a vehicle, you know, like that activism is, is kind of um, maintained or so, but, but as constitutive of political agency. So how we could think about agency 
through the body. So that was this body gender agency kind of triad. And resources, livelihoods, life world triad was that, um, you know, I was really excited actually reading about the life, life world because I, I didn't know about phenomenology also before. So, so like I came like, through through this, this study and I was, wow, this is amazing because it's like, it was also um, like how I was trying to like shift the attention from the first two to, to the third because like how I was trying to show like environmental entities are not not only like could we couldn't treat them not like always only as resources to sustain livelihoods but they are a very central very constitutive parts of our life world which is the world of experience so this is this this kind of triad, triad was was that and ethics ontology relationality that I enjoyed very much, but also I was kind of, um, how can I say, cautious about that because I also talk about a lot of like um, indigenous ontologies, relational ontologies, and so, um, you know, belief and so other things like quite sensitive things. But I also, I think, had certain kind of edge there in, in, in a way to... Um, to understand how, like the ethical and ontological, which is also lacking, ethical and ontological implications of, um, you know, human non-human relationality, which motivate this environmental struggle. So how could we see environmental struggles through these concepts of relationality, ethics, ontology? So what the what is what is out there, um, and not not always uh, kind of reducing them to culture and belief, but but seeing also like the material, the bodily kind of relations uh, that maintain, that sustain them. Um, yeah, I think that was this this kind of triad. So it's, it wasn't like very much intentional, but then I realized, okay, like that, that works well as, as kind of these triads and I used them. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. And yeah, how you respond also, I think speaks very well to your approach to the book, like the book or the ideas there didn't exist prior to you writing it, but was shaped by your writing and thinking. Um, yeah. <laughs> so thanks for taking us through that. Um, yeah. And, you know, throughout our conversation, you mentioned many backgrounds, your background in political science, sociology. Now you're in a geography institute. Um, and I think that, sensibility really comes across in the book like to me the book really read like at times read like a work of literary scholarship or cultural criticism since you pay close attention to documentaries discourses in the media or published interviews so can you tell us about what it meant for you to work across different resources and what it meant for you to attend to what is said about hydroelectric power plants and how they were said yeah, it's a very interesting question. And I think um, what I should say is that I could never like make sense of disciplinary divisions um, and maybe also methodological ones. <laughs> um, and yeah, that kind of reflects in my own academic biography in a way. Um, but also like apart from political science, sociology and geography, I, like I read a lot of philosophy, anthropology, you know, feminist theory, obviously indigenous studies, environmental humanities and so. 
And I always have difficulty when people ask me, you know, what you do. And there was there was like this um, conversation uh, with an with a philosopher who said, ah, the work you do is yes, like excellent environmental philosophy. And I was like, what? what? Environmental? <laughs> so it's like, and you say now cultural criticism is like, which is nice. I have no idea. It's like I think how I, how I work is, um, which is not even a choice in a way, which is the only only thing that I could do. I think is to follow a question uh, and, you know, trying to think on, on that question, trying to explain certain phenomena. And in, in this book, like, for, for example, you know, why these people are fighting, you know, uh, like tooth to nail to protect these rivers that, that they don't use, they don't worship. It's not, they don't have this political significance for them and so so. And why do women are on the forefront? Why they talk differently? You know, why they use like different discourses, different narratives and like which stresses this kind of bodily relationship, like how, how it comes, comes about. So this is like this kind of questions that I try to understand and follow and so And these resources, you're right. So I used a lot of, um, I used my own observations and, and, and I was so inexperienced in, in field research. So I ne- never did field research before. And I, I remember, like, um, he's now, like, one of my best friends, like, this anthropologist friend, like, talking to an anthropologist friend and asking, like, how you do it? Like, how, how it works? And he told me, like, go there, take a lot of notebooks with you, talk to a lot of people, record if you can, but also write every day, you know, like, this kind of field notebook, which, like, helped me a lot. So I had, like, a lot of notebooks in, in the end. Um, so I used a lot of them, but I also used like why not like the 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 works that like done by other people, but you know not not only by academics but journalists, you know interviews that made by journalists, like media accounts, social media material, documentaries, as you say, like whatever I could find um, on the subject, whatever I could lay my ha- hands on. Uh, so I I used them. And um, and I think um, I kind of enjoy like establishing relations or trying to think together like with different sorts of, of, of knowledge, also between like between like different disciplines, different fields, different also different theories and concepts. So it's not like I think phenomenology is quite central in the book, but I use a lot of other sources and other other approaches with it. I think I, I enjoy it, and I think it's the only way that I could do it, and which is not always um, very kind of um, preferable, I would say, <laughs> uh, because it also makes it difficult to locate yourself uh, within this um, academic structures, um, you know, and uh, especially the country I live in, Germany. Uh, uh, like it's even more conservative so like this this borders between disciplines are even more kind of prominent uh, and it is sometimes difficult but I think that's the way I could do it and that's the way I enjoy to do it and that's the way I enjoyed reading the book (laughs) Um, yeah and you know I know you mentioned how you don't necessarily like being confined to a particular discipline, but as an anthropologist, I can't not ask you a question about um, the fieldwork portion. (laughs) So um, 
yeah, something I really liked is how each chapter starts with an excerpt from an interview. So I'm curious what it meant for you to front load the chapters with your interlocutor's words and without necessarily mediating them, so putting them there as they are. Yeah, um, very good question. I think I took the fieldwork like very seriously, maybe because I didn't <laughs> know a lot about it, you know, because it's like I, I only worked with, you know, texts and, you know, like that kind of material before. And it was, you know, the first fieldwork, like as a postdoc, you know, the first fieldwork field kind of ex- experience. And I was so amazed. So I was like, wow, because be- before I was kind of, I had this all this kind of like prejudice, you know, about the fieldwork. I was thinking, ah, people already have their concepts and ideas, and they go and they pick pick, you know, cert- certain things that that fits, and then you know, what's the purpose, you know? Um, but I was like really amazed, and that that shifted like everything for me. That you know, shifted my perspective, shifted the theories, concepts that I that I use, shifted the discipline that I'm in, you know. I wasn't a geographer, you know, but I suddenly like found myself in geography, like publishing in geography journals. I wasn't a feminist, at least in the in the methodological kind of intellectual sense, politically, yes, but you know, I wasn't I wasn't like working with feminist methodology or, or anything like that, but it forced me to. So it kind of pushed me uh, to. And I wasn't a phenomenologist. I didn't know any, anything about. So it was all through the data. So I'm really grateful, actually. It's all, it's all through the data that that like all these things emerge all through the all through the fieldwork, and um, and like the words that 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 you ask, it wasn't also a very much conscious decision, but I think what I felt was um, like people could sometimes depict the things that I want to discuss like much better than I could ever do. So this is like like the like the thing that I was reading. So this is like very much like out there, and this is like you know so much well framed and and so. And why why not use it as it is? You know why not just like kind of maybe mediate it always? I mean, I, mean some, I sometimes of course tell the stories and mediate, but I I also like to kind of give it as as quotes quotations, like kind of mm, how can I say so. Let this this voice to to kind of shape the book, lead the book as, as it led me, because it was these it was through these voices that you know my concepts, my discipline, my my perspective, my everything has changed, and I think it was like a good decision to kind of let it to uh, to find its way in the book also. Yeah, I agree. See fieldwork; it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> no but thank yeah thank you for sharing you know sort of the whole process uh around it um i'm also curious about how you wrote about how rivers feel, which is a very important part of the book. So what was your approach to taking in how rivers are felt in the fieldwork? And how did you use writing and visuals to convey how rivers feel? Yeah, I think I prioritized um, kind of listening people and listening like their accounts, like how, how rivers feel. 
um, you know, then feeling the river myself, um, because I think it has a, like a few different kind of uh, reasons. Uh, one reason was was that, as I told, like I didn't have the intention to focus on these feelings and sensations actually. And it was be- like people started to talk about it, women, you know, like women started to talk about it. And uh, I feel really lucky that I was open enough to hear that. So I was open enough to, to not to like let it go, you know, like this is not important and so on. And, so. Um, and, and then like in, in time, I realized like, okay, this is really pervasive. This is really like central thing, like, like people tell a lot about their experiences with river and how it feels you know like the way they hear it the way they see it the way they touch it swim in it and so then so, like their childhood about, like with all this sensation and so so this is a very cent- central thing obviously and but i didn't have the chance to to develop that kind of like very um how can I say strong like con- connections and, and feelings myself because I stayed I you know I as, as you say I went to like three different regions and I went to like various villages in in each region so I couldn't stay long anywhere of course I kind of had these experiences of like touching it hearing it seeing it and it was impressive like a lot like different rivers but um, I didn't have the chance to like really kind of delve in it in terms of like feelings um which is yeah which is something kind of maybe like i i would like to change if i had the chance now but um also i don't know i'm not regretting like this kind of methodological uh, choice per se because it is i think through that kind of you know through going different regions that i could see that okay this is this is different like there's something different here um that that i could you know focus on um, otherwise, I couldn't, you know, identify the difference. You know, I couldn't explain that the way I, I explained in, in the beginning of our, our interview. Or, like, going different villages in the same region, in the East Plexi region, also, like, made me realize, okay, this is not particular to, you know, a specific place or a specific river. This is, like, really kind of across the region. This is, this is something that you see, um, you know, very kind of... Um, how can I say? Clearly, it's very observ- observable across across the region, and uh, so so I don't regret it. But now, if I had the chance, I would like to probably like stay much longer in one or two villages, you know, and to to develop that kind of experience myself. I, I also didn't have the chance to go back, you know, after like in the analysis uh, phase or so because of. The political situation in Turkey. I'm I'm a signee of Academics for Peace petition. There was a case back then in 2016 um, against us, and then like you know other other things. And then, but I still you know <laughs> want to go with my family. Also, I want to show you know my partner and my child like those rivers, and then like stay there. And so I would really like to you know feel it also myself. But what I did was I read a lot of anthropology and phenomenology of water so to understand like so to um not only to understand myself but to connect with the accounts of people you know to to really to really try to make sense of what what are they talking about and how do other people you know feel it you know in other parts of the world you know 
what does really like touching water, you know, what is hearing it, you know, what are these affects, what are these sensations and how it is experienced and how it is described. And so, so to, to, to make sense of it. Um, and I grew up by the sea. So my, my balcony, our balcony was literally on the sea in, in Gojek, in like, in a, like a tiny kind of place in, in Turkey. That was tiny at the time. That was a fishing village. Now it's like, it's a rich people's place. And we don't live there anymore. <laughs> so I have this very kind of internal relationship with water myself. Um, Seawater, so it's a bit different than, than river water. But, but it was easy for me in that sense, especially when I was writing on touch. So like being in water, immersion, and like that, that kind of issues that I know very well for myself. Because like... Um, this is a place that I feel most comfortable. So in in water, um, so maybe there was also a personal connection. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing this with us. And no, this is one of the main reasons why I love doing these podcasts. We get to learn about things that maybe didn't go into the book or the kinds of choices that went into it. So I really appreciate learning more about it. Um, so my last question is, what is next for you? What are some new projects or questions in which you're interested currently? Yeah. <laughs> Timely. Um, actually, um, I want to take some time out of, of academic life. Um, that's my plan now. <laughs> so, like, maybe a year or so. So, that's... <laughs> that's Sounds <idea>. great. <laughs> yeah. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah, you know, to, to, to read and write and to also think and go around, like, more freely. Um, and um, so I, I started a book, a non-academic book, uh, when I became a mother uh, six years ago uh, on motherhood uh, in Turkish because I was like really um, having like a lot of emotions at the same time, struggling with a lot of things and started to read feminist literature on, on motherhood you know, as a survival strategy, actually. And then realized that we don't have like that kind of literature a lot in Turkey. Uh, especially on, on, on motherhood. And, and I decided, I, w- I was writing like some parts, you know, myself, but I decided maybe it's like I can write something like this, like using my experience, but also in dialogue with feminist literature and, and, and so. And I started, but I couldn't, of course, finish because of, you know, academic projects like going and motherhood itself <laughs> also. <laughs> so, um Maybe I finished that book. I want to read and write on phenomenology also, because I think it's it's kind of it's a relevant theory and method to to think about and to discuss um, very central issues like body, identity, environment, illness, and pain, like that kind of issues also. But you know, within the academic literature, it's very much um, how can isolated. In a way, so there's this thing, feminist phenomenology, eco-phenomenology, and phenomenology of pain and illness, and that, and everybody has, of course, like their little circles. And so, so I would really like to like kind of bridge them in terms of like discussing, maybe, maybe yeah, like the, what we were saying, like kind of putting, putting them together in an accessible language, if, if I could, uh, that will be probably in, in English. Um, and I'm also interested in 
I don't know if I could do it in academia again or, or maybe outside of it, but I'm interested in feminist ethics of care and how I was thinking like recently uh, how we can think this this environmental issues and environmental struggles through that you know because it's fem- in in feminist ethics of care it's already like non-human care is a big thing you know um but you know matters of care like this big book and and so um uh, but uh, like not necessarily in terms of this environmental struggles and um how we care about you know non-human entities you know what is what is this content of care there and and so um so i would like to also think about that but i don't know in which form so i don't know if i would be i I live in germany as i said so i'm kind of upset about how how academic world is structured here it's that there's no permanent positions until you're a professor and there's unlimited and uh, unchecked power when you're a professor so it's kind of it's a weird kind of synthesis of neoliberalism and feudalism in, in, in the academic world. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's very much hierarchical. It's, it's also very much like dis- disciplinary and closed kind of in a way. So, uh, yeah, so I feel a bit tired uh, of, of that. So maybe like doing some intellectual stuff out of academia for now. Well, these all sound really exciting. And yeah, I personally am really looking forward to your year of <laughs> reflection and <laughs> thinking beyond boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> sounds really wonderful. And I'm also looking forward to what may come out of it in either Turkish or English. So I'll be looking forward to that. But for now, thank you very much, Özge, for joining us and for your insights. Thanks, Eliza. It was it was really fun. So it was a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. <laughs> This is your host, Eliza Rijan. This discussion of fighting for the river, gender, body, and agency in environmental struggles, published by the University of California Press in 2023, is brought to you by New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. Thank you for listening.